Revelation chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. We're in a series right now taking a look at the seven letters of the seven churches in the book of Revelation in chapters 2 and 3. And what we're looking at is what Jesus has to say to the church. Because what Jesus has to say to these churches, he has to say to every church in every generation regardless of their geography. And we may look at the book of Revelation and say, man, there's a lot of distance and space between us and them. There's a lot of difference in generations. We live in a different time. And there's a lot of difference in geography. We live in a different place. But what Jesus has to say to these churches, he has to say to this church. And so we're taking a look at that at Redeemer. Over the, We've been looking at it for several weeks now. We'll finish it up just before Easter, uh, looking at these seven letters. And so far what we've seen is that Jesus says that a faithful church has several characteristics. And first one he said out of the gate was this, that it's a loving church. That it's a church that has love at the center and filled with love in their hearts. Love for God and love for others. Because Jesus said to the church at Ephesus, without love there is no light. You have no witness in the world without love. You're just dead, cold, dry. Second thing that Jesus says that a mark of a faithful church is that they endure. They endure hardship. They endure persecution. They endure suffering and opposition that rises up against them because they're holding faithful to the truth. The third mark, he said that the church in Smyrna. The third mark we saw last week to the church in Pergamon where Jesus said that truth matters that doctrine matters, that what you believe matters. And so this week we come to the church at Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 29. If you don't have a Bible in front of you or an app on your phone, you can follow it on the screen as we read together. We'll pick up in verse 18 and read down through verse 29 together and see what Jesus has to say to this church and ours. He says in verse 18, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, I say to you, I do not lay any other burden on you. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken into pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star." He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, uh, we're not, I just want to say at the outset that in the next 35 minutes, we don't have time to hit everything in this text. And so um, I'm just going to go ahead and lay that groundwork out there for you. But we want to hit several high points as we look at what the church has, Jesus has to say to the church. And the first one is this. Is this, the life of a Christian and the life of any church, any church, no matter what its age or where it's planted, the life of any church and life of any Christian is supposed to be a life of progressive growth, of progressive growth. In verse 19, Jesus says this, he commends the church for their love, for their faith, for their service and their endurance. And he even says this, he says, your latter works are greater than your former 
In other words, you've continued to progress. There's lots of churches that start really strong. They come out of the gate really hard, right? And they're loving the community around them and loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they're enduring opposition and hardship and going through really difficult seasons as a church. And they're serving the community that's around them and serving the body within them. Right? And they're, 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 they're believing God for great things and exercising great faith. They start out of the gate really strong, but over the course of time, that fire begins to wither and it begins to fade and it begins to dwindle. And it becomes a, a, a shell of what it once was. Jesus says, that's not the case with you, Thyatira. You didn't start well and come out of the gate, out of the blocks on a sprint, right? You knew this was a marathon and that you had to pace yourself, but that you were going to continue to press forward to all that God had in store for you. And he said, you've, you've, you started well in love, and you started well in service, and you started well in endurance, and you started well in faith, but even your latter works, the ones that you're doing now, they exceed the things that came in the past because there's been progressive growth as you've moved forward with Jesus. That you haven't become complacent and stagnant in these areas, but they've continued to multiply, and you've continued to grow and progress in them. Jesus says the life of a Christian, the life of any church, is one of progressive growth of progressive maturity. And listen, while the church at Thyatira had grown in these areas, there's one area in which Jesus corrects them. He said, I want to commend you for these things, right? Well done. But here's a correction that I want to give you. Right? Because while you've grown in love and you've grown in service and you've grown in endurance and you've grown in faith, there's an area that you have not grown in and that is the area of holiness. There's an area of Holiness. You made progress in all these other areas, but you do not have a thoroughgoing commitment to holiness. All right, here's the situation at Thyatira, right? I'll give you a little background. Thyatira was not like Ephesus. Ephesus was like the New Yorker LA of its day. It was a cultural hub. Culture flowed out of Ephesus to the surrounding regions, right? So music and art and fashion, all, all, the, all the, 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 the stuff that shapes culture came out of Ephesus. It wasn't like Pergamum either. Right? It, it wasn't filled with political um, ex- executives and elites of the Roman Empire. So it wasn't a cultural hub and it wasn't a political hub. What Thyatira was, it was a blue-collar town. A lot of blue-collar workers who worked in what we might call the fashion industry today. Right? And so they made shoes and they made garments and they made robes and they made hats and they made all kinds of things. In fact, when Paul meets a lady by the name of Lydia... She was a purple garment dyer from the town of Thyatira, right? That's where she came from. That's what they were known for. There's a lot of blue-collar workers there in the city, right? And so Thyatira was not the pinnacle of society. It wasn't filled with cultural elites. But they did have what we, we, what we talked about last week, some very influential trade guilds in the city. Now, a trade guild in those days, right, was a, an, an association of people who shared the same vocation, so you got all the carpenters together, and you got all the plumbers together, and you got all the electricians together, and you had these guilds, right? And in those days, in Thyatira, they would have had a guild for the robe makers, and for the garment dyers, and for the sandal makers, and for the hat makers. All these people would get together, and these, these trade guilds, they had patron deities, They had patron gods, and so if you wanted your trade to flourish, if you wanted your business to grow and your profit margins to increase, then you participated in the trade guild. You wanted to start a business, you went to the trade guild. You wanted to grow a business, you went to the trade guild. You wanted to make partner, right? You had to be a part of the trade guild. You wanted promotion, you had to be a part of the trade guild. 
And in these trade guilds, they would have these feasts and festivals in which they would throw big, big feasts for these patron gods, like the god of the shoemakers and the god of the, the, the garment dyers and the god of the hat makers. Right? And they would worship these patron deities, believing that the worship of these gods would bring success to their business. And so they would flourish and profits would increase and they would, they would, they would succeed. Now, part of these feasts, they would, listen, these feasts, they were like frat parties on steroids, all right? They, I mean, they were frat parties par excellence. If those two words even go together, I'm not sure if they do, right? And so by the end of these feasts, there was all kinds of perverted and immoral sexual things that were going on in the worship of these gods. And, this is, and, and there seems to be one in the, in the city of Thyatira. There were some influential people in the life of the church who were telling the Christians there, listen, if you want to flourish in business, it's okay. Jesus understands. Just go and participate in the feast and festivals and celebrations with the rest of the trade guilds. Go and eat the food that's been sacrificed. Go and participate in the immorality and worship the patron gods. Jesus understands you've got to make a living somehow. And it seems that the woman, there was a woman at the center of this, and all we know about her is her nickname, it was Jezebel. I don't think that was her real name, right? Uh, listen, if you, if those of you who are maybe expecting a young lady, maybe a little girl, like that, that is not a name that you want to give your little girl. Listen, that's not, you don't want her to namesake to be Jezebel, right? Because Jezebel, I don't think this was her real name, but Jezebel, the real Jezebel, lived about a thousand years prior to the writing of the Revelation from John. And she, listen, here's a little info on Jezebel. Jezebel uh, was the daughter of the king of Sidon, Ethbal. And Ethbal decided that he wanted the worship of Baal, his god, to spread throughout the area. And so what he did was he made an alliance with Israel. The king in Israel at the time was named Ahab. And a part of that alliance, he married his daughter Jezebel off to Ahab. And Ahab took her to be his wife. Now, in that process, what Jezebel did is she brought into Israel 850 prophets of Baal. And then she began to pilfer Israel's coffers, right, to pay the salaries of these prophets with Israel's capital. So she was funding idolatry and idol worship through the, through the, the political channels and, and royal coffers. Right, and then eventually she persuaded Ahab, Ahab, listen, this, these things aren't getting along, right? We need to track down all of the prophets of Yahweh and systematically hunt them down and murder them. And Ahab's like, sure, right? And so they go out and begin to track down all the prophets of Yahweh and they begin to put them to death. And so you find I, I, Elijah hiding in a cave eventually, one of the prophets of Yahweh hiding in a cave, cowarding in fear and tears, weeping for his life because Jezebel is out to get him. Right, and that was after Elijah goes up to Mount Carmel, right, where he takes the 850 prophets of Baal and says, listen, we're going to decide whose God is real. And so they build an altar, put sacrifices, cover it in water, said, we're going to ask this real God to call down fire and lap all this stuff up. So the prophets of Baal dance and cut themselves and call out to their gods all day. And Elijah's like, hey, listen, they must be taking a nap or on the toilet or on vacation, not sure what's going on. But let me call out to my God. And he calls out to Yahweh, and Yahweh consumes everything with a blazing fire. Now, eventually, God defeats the prophets of Baal, and he would ultimately hunt those down and kill and slay the prophets of Baal. And eventually Jezebel would come to an end as well. And Jehu pushes her off of a high tower, and she falls to the ground. And when she falls to the ground, she dies. And the dogs, we're told in 1 Kings, they come to eat her body, everything but her hands, her feet, and her head. And here's the point, that the dogs won't even eat the wicked hands 
of Jezebel, the things that she's done. The dogs won't even eat the wicked feet of Jezebel, the places that she's gone and led Israel into. The dogs won't even eat that face. She's a very beloved figure. And here's the point Jesus is making. He's saying that wickedness and that evil you are tolerating in the life of your church. That's his point. That, that kind of wickedness and that kind of evil you are tolerating in the life of the church is into this context that Jesus says, the one who has eyes like fire. And the point of that is this, is that Jesus sees and searches the heart and mind. He says that elsewhere in the text. He sees and searches the heart and mind. He sees under the surface. He sees into the very heart of a church. He sees past all of its slick brochures. He sees past all of its social media campaigns. He sees past all of its service projects in the community to see whether or not there is holiness in the heart and life of that church. And he does the same thing in our lives. Listen, some of us know how to talk the talk, right? We, we know how to navigate Christian circles. And we know what things we can say in certain places, what things we can't say in certain places. But Jesus says, I have eyes like fire that search the heart and mind. And I see under the surface in everyone's life, including mine. And this Jesus, who has feet like burnished bronze, we're told in the text, that he's, he's, it's refined in the fire, bronze that's been refined in the fire that's pure and powerful and steady and fixed, that Jesus has the purity and power to judge rightly because he sees everything. And he calls this church to repentance. Because Jesus says, you may have maximized love and you may have maximized service you may have maximized endurance and you may have maximized faith but what you have done is minimized holiness you've taken that window of your desktop and you've gone up to the, the corner and clicked the little minus button and shoved it down into the far corner on the right hand side with out of your field of vision you've minimized holiness and jesus says holiness matters in fact he says it matters so much church that you should hold on to it you should hold on to holiness. Right? And all that was introduction to get us to this point. Okay? This is what Jesus is saying to the church. That you need to hold on to holiness. You don't minimize it in your life. But along with love, service, endurance, and faith, it needs to be maximized. Because it is a mark of a faithful and true church. You've got to hold on to holiness. Now, it's, it, listen, Jesus, I'll show it to you in the text. He's several times. Listen, look at the emphasis in this text, in verse 22, Jesus says that judgment is coming on some unless they repent of certain works. And Jesus has been long suffering with this Jezebel in the life of the church. He's giving her plenty of runway to repent and to turn from deception and destroying the church there at Thyatira. He's given her lots of opportunity and grace upon grace to turn from those teachings and from those practices. But he says unless she repents and her children, those who walk in her footsteps and follow after her ways, unless they repent, he says judgment is coming. But he's been so gracious, he says, unless they turn from these works that they're doing. We get really uneasy in Protestant evangelical circles when anybody says works. But Jesus talks about them here. In addition, in verse 23, Jesus says that he will judge everyone on the basis of their works because he has eyes that search the mind and heart. In other words, Jesus says, I see all, maybe all the good things you're doing, but I also see underneath that sometimes all the bad reasons you're doing them all the false motivations for the way that you're acting and living. 
because I know what's going on under the surface even if no one else does. In verse 26, he says to those who conquer, those who conquer would keep his works until the end. They'd be faithful to him to have a thoroughgoing holiness in their lives, all of their lives. And so if Jesus says you've got to hold on to holiness, we would do well to understand what holiness is and what it isn't. Because I think some of you probably walked in the room this morning coming from other church experiences and backgrounds, maybe with a misconception about what holiness actually is biblically. Let me tell you what it's not first. First of all, holiness is not looking at God and saying, God, would you give me the list of rules so I can keep them? Right? That's what many of us think holiness is. Like, the God's got a list of rules and he gives them to us and I just check them off the box, right? I can fall in line with that list of rules. In fact, some of us have gotten so good at keeping the rules that whenever other people talk about us, they use the word holy, not in a complimentary way, but in a very critical way. They say things like, they're, they're just holier than what? Thou. And what they mean by that is this, that they have gotten really good at keeping all the rules, crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's. Their life looks perfect, at least a lot better than mine. But that is not holiness. Holiness doesn't come to God and say, God, give me the rules so I can keep them. That's what the Pharisees did. Didn't turn out well for them. Second of all, listen, holiness is also not coming to God saying, God, look how good I am. Look at all the virtues in my life compared to my neighbors down the street. That's not holiness either. See, Jesus sees that at times in churches that there becomes this ingrownness in the life of a church that says, listen, we are holy, we are, we, we're, we're good with God because we're not like those people out there. But that's not holiness in the Bible either, I want you to know. Right? Holiness is not saying, God, give me all the rules so I can keep them, or God, listen, I'm really good compared with my neighbors or with my coworkers or with my bosses. That is not biblical holiness. What holiness is in the Bible, and I wish I had time to show you this morning, but we'd be here for a lot longer. You'll thank me afterwards. Listen, it, what holiness is in the Bible is this. Holiness in the Bible is coming to God and saying, God, not, not give me all the rules, or God, not compare my life to the people who are like one rung lower than me on the moral, like, chart over here but holiness is coming to God and saying God I want to be set apart that's what the word holy means I want to be set apart for you and your purposes and your service God use me use all of me use every facet of my life God I'm relinquishing everything over to you that's holiness both in the old testament and the new it's not just the keeping of rules externally and checking boxes some of you have been burned in churches that were very legalistic and said holiness is you, you didn't dress this way or, or you went to see that movie or, or you, you bought that song, right? That you've been burned because you've, you think they're just a checkbox of all these external things that you do or don't do. You've also been burned because people have snubbed you at times. And they've, 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 they've cut you out of their lives because you, you don't, you don't have the same virtues they do. You don't live the same kind of life that they live. But you know, that's not holiness at all. In fact, real holiness is so attractive because people who exercise holiness, they're the freest, fullest, holiest people on the planet. That's what holiness is in the Bible. And that's what Jesus is calling us to, to say, God, sign me up. I'm all in, I'm all yours, use me, I'm set apart, everything, every facet, every aspect of my life, 
right? With my sexuality, I'm all yours. With my money, I'm all yours. With my time, I'm all yours. God, with everything that I have, with my family, with my kids, as a parent, as a child, I'm all yours and all in. Would you use me for your service and purposes? That's what it is to be holy. That does have external outputs in your life, but it's got to start there or else it's just legalism or feeling superior to everyone else who's around you. That's my life is set apart for God and his purposes. And listen, in this text, Jesus, he gives us two brilliant motivations for holding on to holiness. Because listen, church, holiness, it leads somewhere. It leads somewhere. I'm gonna take a little bit of time on this first one. I'm gonna take a lot of time on the second one because I think the second one really really hit home for a lot of us this morning. The first one is this. Holiness leads to sharing in God's rule. Look, if you drop down in verses 26 and 27, listen to what Jesus says. To him who conquers, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule with them with a rod of iron, even as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. What Jesus promises to those who hold to his works to the end, and they continue to walk in holiness, saying, God, I'm all yours and I'm all in. Regardless of the judgments that the world may make on me, regardless of what anybody else around me may say or how they would treat me, regardless of the opposition that I will face, God, I'm all in and I'm all yours. I'm going to hold on to your works until the very end, until my life ends or until Christ returns. Jesus promises that you would rule with him. That those of us who would go from being under the judgments of men in this life on account of our faithfulness and loyalty to Jesus. Jesus says, you will go to being a judge over those men who had judged you. You will go to ruling with me. That's a beautiful promise for those who are facing the critique and criticism and opposition and hatred of people in this world because of their faithfulness to Jesus. Jesus says there will come a day in which they will be broken. They will be shattered like pots. And judgment will come. And in that day, you will reign with me. You will judge with me. Instead of being under their judgment, you will be with me in judgment of them. That's that's what Jesus says. But the second thing that holiness leads to is this, church. And I want to spend some time on this one. Holiness not only leads to a sharing in God's rule, but it also leads to the healing of our heart. Jesus not only promises that we would rule with him, but let's look what else he says he would give. This is beautiful. He says, I will give them the morning star. Now the morning star comes out of a prophecy in Numbers chapter 24 when Balaam was hired by Balak, the king of Moab, the prophesy against Israel. He begins to prophesy and nothing but good stuff comes out. We've talked about this a couple of times. And in one of those prophecies, listen, in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, he says, I see him, but not now. Behold him, but not near. In other words, I I see somebody, but he's not here now. I behold him, but he's not not here yet. He's coming in the future. He says, and there'll be a star that will come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. There's going to be a star that's rising out of Jacob, out of the nation of Israel, a star to rule and reign. And listen to what Jesus says about that star further on in the book of Revelation. 
In Revelation chapter 22, Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David. I am the bright and morning star. Jesus says, I am the star that rose out of Israel to rule and govern all peoples in all places. And Jesus says in Revelation 2, he says, to him who conquers by walking in holiness, he says, here's why you need to hold on to it, because to hit the one who holds on to holiness, he says, I will give him myself. He will know me in ways that others do not. He will taste of me in ways that others cannot. I will give myself to him. And that is a beautiful, beautiful promise because it is this Jesus by whom and through whom and for whom all things were created, including you and I. He says he will give himself in all power and all beauty and all majesty and all glory. And listen, here's why this is so significant to you today. Some of you are like, man, that's great one day. Here's why this is so significant today. Because only the one who made you can heal you. Church, only the one who formed you can fix you. There is no other. Listen, I, I've, I've got an iPhone 7. I hadn't upgraded yet. I don't know when that time's going to come. Maybe when I sell a kidney. But I had a shattered screen last year, and so I decided I might want to get that fixed before my kids or myself just sliced our fingers, all my fingerprints would come off, right? And so I took it into a third-party vendor, and that third-party vendor replaced the screen with a third-party piece of glass. It didn't come from Apple, right? It wasn't Apple that replaced it. And so I got my phone back, and I was like, sweet, I can see things again. I don't have to look in that one little narrow window of the screen in order to read an email anymore. And so I'm using my phone, and a couple of days later, right, I notice it starts just doing random things. It starts acting up and glitch. Ever since then, it's been just going glitch mode every once in a while, right? And so what will happen is I'll, I'll just pull out my phone, I'll start typing in a note or a text, and all of a sudden, my phone just starts bouncing back and forth between all these different apps, right? So it pulls up fishing apps, and it pulls up my calendar, and it pulls up, you know, uh, my, my exercise app, and it pulls up all these, pulls up my email, and my text messages, and my notes, and then it starts deleting all these notes that I've made. It starts sending out texts to random people. So if you've gotten a random text from me with like HMQZ in it, it's my phone, right? So it just starts, every once in a while, it just starts glitching. And so I've finally gotten to a point where I'm about to break down and bring it back to Apple. Why? Because they made it. They made it, and they know best how to restore it. They know best how to fix it. They know best how to bring it back to factory default settings and make it work right again. And listen, church, only the one that made you can fix you. Only he can heal you. Some of you are carrying wounds in your life that have been festering for years. And you, maybe you've been taking your life to all kinds of third-party vendors, right? To this other relationship that you think is going to fix you. You think it's going to heal you. You think it's going to make you whole. But all it does is leave you more empty than you were before. Or you've been bringing your life to, to this particular self-image that you're trying to create. How thin you are, right? 
or how toned you are, especially as we get ready for swimsuit season, can I get an amen, right? So as you're getting ready, like you're, how thin I am, how toned I am, how attractive I am, right? how beautiful I am, how people will respond to me on the basis of how I look, and you've been bringing, you're worshiping at this altar of self-image, thinking it's going to fix you, but all it does is break you even further. You've been going to all these third-party vendors trying to use, utilize all this third-party tech to fix your life. And Jesus says, I am the bright and morning star. And my path to healing, listen church, my path to healing in your life is holiness. That's the path that you walk to find yourself in a place where you're whole to find yourself in a place where you're healed, to find yourself where Jesus is able to bring to put you back together into the image of God that you were created in, which was shattered and defaced through the fall. He begins to piece you back together step by step by step as he reforms you, as he recalibrates settings in your life. And some of us have been so hesitant to bring our lives to him. And here's why. Because we believe that when we bring our lives to him, and if his path to healing is holiness, we believe that holiness is going to be restrictive. It's going to put bonds on us. It's going to shackle us. There's going to be boundaries that are drawn where Jesus says, you can do these things, but you can't do these things. And listen, I want you to know that you're right in thinking there will be restrictions. But here's what I want you to know too. The restrictions that Jesus will place, the boundaries that he will draw, they are boundaries that fit your nature. See, most of us think that I will be free when I have no boundaries. I will be free when I have no restrictions. When I can go anywhere and do anything. But that is not a biblical picture of freedom. There's a cultural picture of freedom. The biblical picture of freedom, Christianity says this, you will be free and you will be full and you will flourish whenever you come to God and say, God, would you teach me how to live and walk in the holiness? Because holiness is the restrictions that are fit to your nature, how God has made you and how God wants to remake you. Listen, I grew up fishing a, a good portion of my life. Kind of went away from it a little bit in college, came back to it after college. I, I, I love spending a day on the water. And listen, I've caught a lot of fish in my day right? I, I hadn't broken that 10-pound threshold, but man, by God's grace, it's coming. Feel it. I've caught a lot of fish in my day. And so you get a fish up to the side of the boat, and you can get them in the boat one of three ways, right? You can bend down on your knee and kind of do the gentle way and scoop them up out of the water. Or you can get somebody with a net who comes and dips them up. Or you can boat flip him, right? Some of you are like, I don't know what a boat flip is, but I'm about to tell it to you, right? So you stand on the deck of the boat and you get the fish up close to the deck. And if he's not too big, if he's too big, you better net him because he could come off very easily if you boat flip him. But the boat flip him is to use the leverage of the rod. And as you're reeling, you get him close to the boat and then you just kind of wrench him up. And he comes flying over the, over the deck of the boat and onto the boat. Sometimes he comes off in the boat and flops around on the, on the deck or down in the bottom in the cockpit area, right? And so you get him and you either put him in a live well, you release him. But I've caught a lot of fish in my day. And I boat flipped a lot of fish in my day, and some of them have come off, and when they come off, here's what they do. Do you know what the fish does when he's out of water? He just flops around, right? He's just laying on the deck, like, right, just flopping around all over the deck. Why? Because a fish is not free outside of the water. He is in bondage outside the water. 
Because the fish's nature is confined to the water. That's where he's, you put that fish back in the water, he can swim, he can jump, he can frolic and play. He can have a good old time. Outside the water, he will eventually die. He will die. Listen, you and I, Jesus says, I'm the one who made you, I'm the one who can fix you. And if you're afraid of being bound up with restrictions in your life, here's what you need to see, is that there will be some things God draws a boundary around, but those things fit your nature. It's inside those where you can flourish and be free. Outside of those, you'll be flopping around on the deck of the boat of life until you die. Only he can heal you, church. Now listen, if that's true, and it is, and it is, then what do we do about it? Let me give you four things as we close. I'm gonna give them to you quick. First one is this. How do you, how do you come to God, your maker, and allow him to begin to piece you back together? First one is this. You gotta learn to acknowledge the lack of holiness in your life. See, one old Puritan pastor, and I, I, I'm not going to quote him, I'm just going to give you the paraphrase of what he said because it's old English. You have to go look up words and all that kind of stuff. But listen, this is what he said. Basically what he said was this, when you are complacent in the degree of holiness you have reached rather than conflicted about the degree of holiness you have yet to reach, you will never grow in holiness. I don't know, if, I don't know about you, but have you ever started a project around the house and you kind of walk in? I, I did this in the bathroom a couple of months ago. It's bad when you say a couple of months ago, right? And a couple of months ago, I decided, uh, my wife wanted a long-standing mirror hung on the wall, and so I said, okay, baby, we're going to put that mirror on the wall where I created holes in the wall where the old towel bar used to be. I had to patch those over, fill them up with spackle, and then I was like, I don't have any of this color paint because this is the paint the builder painted it with. And I don't even know where that paint color is anymore. And so now it's time to paint the bathroom. Yes. So I go out and buy paint, and I start painting the bathroom. Well, two months later, I'm still painting the bathroom. Right? Because every time I walk in, I'm like, man, that looks good. I'm like, I got a little time. I'm going to go work on something else. Right? I'm going to go play with my kids. I'm going to go watch a show. I'm going to go binge some Netflix. Right? I'm going to go do something else. I'm going to go fishing. Right? And I walk in, and I'm like, man, that looks... So I become complacent with the degree of progress that I've made, and it keeps me from pushing forward to completion. And the same is true with holiness in your life. If you become complacent in the degrees of holiness that you've attained, then and not, you're not conflicted about areas of your life that are still not under the lordship of Christ. And you will never grow in holiness. You've got to learn to acknowledge your lack of it, first of all. But there are areas in which you're not saying, God, I'm all in and all yours. Use me for your service and purposes. Second of all, second of all, not only do you have to acknowledge the lack of it, but you have to relinquish the rights to your life. And listen, church, this is not a one-time deal. Do you know that? This is not a one-time deal. Listen, you can easily imagine that those in Thyatira were being persuaded to think that despite what God said, they needed to survive, and Jezebel's encouragement was incredibly appealing to them. And one of the ways to know that you haven't given up the right to your life is this, is that you end up doing what is most expedient in the moment, what is most beneficial to you in the moment, rather than what is best in the mind of God. Ever found yourself there doing what's most beneficial in the moment 
rather than what is best in the mind of God. That's a prime indicator that you've yet to relinquish the rights to your life. That you still see yourself at the center of your life and you see God as a, a, a great supporting character in your life story to help you accomplish your goals and dreams. Tim Chester said it this way. He said, our problem is that we think of ourselves as being at the center of our world. We think of our lives as a story. And if we are Christians, God being one of the characters in the story, we look for him when we need him and expect him to be grateful when we serve him. He's a lovely piece of our story, but we still think of it as our story. You see, church, holiness, listen, let me break it down for you this way. Holiness is not a rental contract with God. It's not where we come to God and we lease him our lives, but we retain ownership. And we say, God, you can have this room and you can have this room and you can have this room, but God, you can't have this room. Or God, you can use my life for these purposes, but not for these purposes. You ever signed a rental agreement before with anyone, right? right? When we signed a rental agreement here at Highview, right, part of the, part of the agreement was we could use the building at certain times and we could, we could use the building for certain things, but to use it outside of those times or outside of those things, we needed to talk to the owners about that to get their permission. That's what a rental agreement is. But listen, those who have relinquished the right to their life, they understand that holiness is not a lease agreement with God. Where we say, God, you can have these parts of my life, but not others. And a part of giving up the rights to your life is this. It's giving up the right to determine what is right and wrong, good and evil for yourself. It's giving up the right to determine that for yourself. Because if I determine that for myself, then oftentimes what I find myself doing, I don't know about you, but I find myself doing what is beneficial in the moment, not as best in the mind of God. Third, third, and this one's important, you gotta trace your behavior to the underlying beliefs. You've got to trace your behavior to the underlying beliefs. If you notice the progression in these letters to the churches in Revelation, it's this. It moves from Pergamum, tolerating false teaching, now to Thyatira, tolerating false ways of living. And those two are always connected, church. Doctrine and deeds always go hand in hand. One flows out of the other. And that's exactly what's going on in Thyatira is that there are beliefs under these behaviors. There's teaching under this living. There's doctrine under these deeds that are going on in their lives. And so if we're gonna make progress in holiness and put our feet on the path of holiness to experience healing and let Jesus begin to put us back together, we've gotta begin to trace our behaviors from the surface down underneath to the beliefs that are supporting those and driving them. For instance, for instance, in, in 2016, listen, I fell prey to a lie that amplified anxiety in my life. I don't know if you struggle with anxiety. I do. It amplified anxiety in my life. And what I, listen, there's some natural anxiety that come along with pastoral ministry. And there's some natural anxiety that comes along with transitioning a church from one location to another and changing the name and trying to create a new identity and move it forward. There's some natural anxiety that comes along with that. There is supernatural anxiety. I will say this, from, from, the, from the pits of hell that comes whenever you believe that the transitioning and flourishing of that church will either make or break you. It will define you. 
And I believe that lie. And I live that lie. And I felt the crushing weight of that anxiety in my life. There was a belief underneath the surface that was false, that was driving behaviors in my life. And listen, church, if you were to be honest, there are probably some underlying beliefs in yours. There are probably some lies that you are believing that are driving certain behaviors and certain ways of living in your life. You've got to learn to trace those things down to the root. This is, this is where biblical community oftentimes comes into play in our lives. Because sometimes other people will see things in you that you don't yet see in yourself. And so if you're like, man, it's me and Jesus. We're going to ride this thing out together until the day that I die or he comes back. Glory, hallelujah. But you're not connected in a local church. You're not integrated in the life of a community. You're not sharing You're not opening your heart up to others and talking about where you're at. Listen, you will make little progress in holiness because you will oftentimes be blinded to the beliefs under your behaviors. Finally, finally, you and I, if we're gonna make progress in holiness and experience the healing that comes with it, we've got to learn to exchange those lies for truth. Listen, I... I, my wife and I bought our house in Wood Creek a few years back, and we've been there about five years now, coming up on six, I believe, in uh, this July. And uh, so we haven't seen all the explosive development in faith, but we've seen a lot of it. And they're still going on, right? And they're just pouring slabs and building houses everywhere you can possibly imagine, right? right? You got a tenth of an acre? All right, put a house right there. <laughs> And as they pour these slabs, they set forms for them and they run all, rough in all the plumbing and some of the electrical and all the things that are going into the house. But one of the things they do whenever they pour the slab, the foundation of what everything else is going to rest on for that house is this, is they take solid steel bars called rebar and they lay it across those forms in crisscrossing patterns because those steel bars help increase the strength of that concrete. They got these steel bars running through the foundation. It helps it keep from twisting and cracking under the heaving of the drying and saturation of the soils in North Texas. The rebar strengthens the foundation. And listen, what some of us need to do in order to make progress in holiness and experience the healing that Jesus promises when he says, I will give you myself. And I'm the only one that can fix you. Some of you need to learn to lay some rebar in your life. Lay some rebar, some truths in your life that, that are going to help support the foundation. They're going to be supporting your identity that everything else rests on. This is who I am. In fact, all throughout the Bible, holiness, the call to be holy, is always connected to who God is and who we are in Him. Who, every time, who God is, who we are in Him. Who God is, who we are in Him. Who God is, who we are in Him. And listen, one of those pieces of rebar that I've tried to lay in my life is a text out of 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, not my merit, not my performance, not well how well I preach, not well how well I lead. Listen, I'm just talking to myself right now. I don't know what you need to say to yourself. Not how well I pastor, not how well the church grows, not what we are in five years, 10 years, 15 years, or 20 years. Not my merit, but according to his mercy, he's caused you to be born again to a living hope. 
That's a piece of rebar that I've tried to lay in my life. And I don't know what beliefs under the surface are really shaping your behaviors. But as you identify those, you need to search out the scriptures that you can begin to lay as rebar in your life. They're going to support the weight of your life. So it's resting on something other than these lies that will deceive and destroy you. Jesus says holiness matters, church. It matters. Partly because without it, you will wreck your life on the rocks. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful. So grateful for your word. God, that is so clear to us, even despite the distance and gaps of cultures and history, that you're still speaking through it today. God, I pray that in this church, that whenever you, when you search the hearts and minds of us as individuals and Redeemer as a body, Father, I pray that you would find us to be a church that says, God, we are all in and we are all yours. That every part of us, God, would be for your service and your purposes. It would be set apart. And as you were distinct, God, we would be distinct, but not in a holier-than-thou kind of way, not in a comparison game kind of way, but we would be distinct to be salt and light for the good of this world and the good of this community in which you've planted us. God, there may be some here this morning who need to repent of some lies that they've been believing, some beliefs that have been under the surface that have been driving behaviors in their life. Father, may we, like the church at Thyatira, may have fallen prey to the belief that, listen, You, all these other areas of our life are maximized but in this one it's minimized and that's okay with you help us not to fall prey to that deception but may we experience the healing that comes whenever we put our lives in your hands and we have you the bright and morning star to piece us back together and heal us And we would give ourselves over to those restrictions that fit our nature. Acknowledge those areas of our life in which there needs to be more progress. That we would relinquish rights. We would discern those beliefs and that we would exchange lies with truth. And Father, now as we close in song, may we savor the one who was holy for us. This great holy high priest for whom all things and in all ways was all in and all yours. May he heal us and piece us back together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.